0: So in practice, there's always a bit of wriggle room um, for individual discussions and individual negotiations. And of course, that statement they make about, well, this is what we pay for this role or so on, that might be true, but it might not be straightforwardly true. So yes, that might perhaps be what they pay for that role, but that doesn't mean that's right.
1: Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast. My name is Fedina Hefti. I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, amazing people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, which leads to gender inequality and the same stale, mostly male, middle class people leading our organizations. We need to change this. In fact, my hope is that many of you listening to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership positions possible, where you make decisions that make our world a better place. Beyond the podcast, I'm the CEO and founder of the social enterprise Leaders Plus. If you want support from brilliant like-minded peers, join our events, or find out about our world-class career development programs, then sign up to our monthly newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. You can also apply by 17th of October to our Fellowship for Ambitious Working Parents in the NHS. And we will open applications in 2023 for our cross-sector fellowship programme again. Today's guest is pay expert, lecturer, HR leader, and Leaders Plus alumna, Lisa Grover. We talk about getting a pay rise, how to prepare for the conversation, and what her experience has been of pay negotiations sitting in the HR chair. Enjoy today's conversation.
0: I'm Lisa Grover. I'm currently a senior lecturer at the University of Exeter Business School. There I lead the Senior People Professional Apprenticeship Programme, which I think is a a fantastic programme because I get to partner with employers to support Their ambitious HR professionals through a master's level apprenticeship. uh, It really gives them that opportunity to develop themselves and learn whilst still studying and working at the same time. So you get that real direct application of, of what they learn to their organizations, which is really nice to see. I'm also a director of a multi academy trust. Prior to making that full time move to academia, which actually I only made last summer. I had 20 or so years of experience as an HR professional, showing my age there. (laughs) And during that career, I progressed to a senior level in the specialism of reward. Of course, I've also been a manager of my own team. So I've had those potentially frank and perhaps sometimes difficult discussions about pay expectations with my own team members or applicants to join my team. Throughout that time, I've had the opportunity to do some really exciting projects. So, uh, responsibility for developing pay strategies for organisations or responsibilities for gender pay gap action plans. All those, I think, are really fascinating areas that have lots of issues, which I don't necessarily have any good answers to, but they're really interesting areas to work in. I might touch on some of those Deeper questions that I think are, are interesting in those areas as we talk. In terms of uh, family, I myself have two children. My daughter is six and my son is two. So Caitlin is at school and Freddie splits his time between preschool and the childminder. I'm also really fortunate that my husband runs his own small business. So he has that flexibility to do school runs and post-school entertainment when I'm in the, the depths of doing something. We don't live near extended family, so we don't have that local support network. So we, we both really need that flexibility to be able to make everything work.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and we should probably say the reason why I was able to rope you on to doing this for this podcast is because you've been one of the first fellows. With the Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme. And it's really been nice, so nice to see your career grow and flourish. And now you're being you know, an absolute expert with pay and now coming back to pay it forward to all the people listening with your experience. So thank you so much. I'm asking everybody this. What did you used to assume about how to combine a big career with young children that you don't believe anymore?
0: That's where my experiences at Leaders Plus have actually really Helped with that question and then changed some of my perceptions and challenged some of my beliefs. So I'm glad you mentioned that on a personal level, I guess. Before having children, I made the assumption that I'd probably want to minimize the amount of time I spent working and that I might be a bit less ambitious and perhaps view it as something I needed to do to basically pay for the rest of my life rather than the work itself and career being central to who I was and what I wanted to do with my life. However, I discovered completely reverse of that was true, and and Leaders Plus was a big part of that self-development and awareness of actually what I wanted to prioritise and what I wanted to do. I think a big part of that was, for me, being at work necessarily means spending time away from my child, now children, and I wanted that time to be spent on something valuable and have, it have a real purpose to what I was doing. So actually, I became more ambitious and more reflective and more aware of what I wanted to achieve rather than less, which is what I expected before having children. And uh, some of those real key learnings from the Leaders Plus programme is are still with me now. So making that time to develop myself, to reflect on my ambitions and my priorities and really think carefully about what I want to do and how I want to get there. And that, that, that overarching message that it's okay to want a big career and have children and, and actually it's possible to do that. <laughs> I, I guess that's the sort of more overarching picture I had perhaps before I had children. The only way to have a big career and young children was perhaps to be that, I guess, caricature of the the sort of absent parent. So the one who's always taking the calls and missing school plays and sports days because they've got to work and that you really had to prioritise your career and focus on that to the perhaps detriment of of everything else. Mm. And I no longer believe that's the case. Yes, it can be challenging to get that balance and it's something you have to work at and keep reflecting on and developing. But you don't have to prioritise your career over everything else to be successful. You can get that balance between the different elements of your life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just think that's really important to have that really well-rounded approach.
1: Mm, true. I'm going to ask you something that wasn't in my very structured <laughs> pre-podcast <laughs> briefing, which is just hearing you talk, it reminds me how many brave decisions you've made. So for the listeners, Lisa decamped to Austria and basically convinced her employer to work from Austria and do lots of skiing and do lots of good work for a while, and then you completely switched from an in-house career to an academic career. I just wonder what gave you the courage to make all these big decisions? So I think it's
0: partly Leaders Plus. It gave me that network of people to talk through ideas, to really challenge what you think is possible and perhaps expand your boundaries of what you think is possible. It really helps having your personal support network. So your partner your family your friends whatever your network is that they also supportive and happy to talk about things and you you make that sort of joint decision about how you make things work it's not this isn't an isolated decision once you're part of a family it's it's very much a network decision I think and yeah it's ultimately you just have to get to that point where you, you take the step very few decisions are completely irreversible just taking that step and going for it and the worst that can happen is somebody says no or perhaps you have to change what your plans were and you might have to adapt but you know at least you're giving it a go and and trying to make some things happen.
1: Very interesting let's talk pay okay do you still remember the first time you sat across that table in a pay negotiation as in you being on the other side HR what was it like?
0: this is a bit of a, a trip down memory lane. And actually, there's a couple of different firsts, depending on what perspective you're, you're taking on pay negotiations. So very early in my career, one of my early pay negotiation experiences was with a union. So trying to negotiate how pay was going to be calculated for a particular group of employees and negotiating with that union representative to get that decision. So that that's a bit more, I guess, a sort of traditional negotiations setting and as with all new experiences it was really nerve-wracking you you don't really know what to expect you don't know the people you don't know what the dynamic in the room is going to be like obviously this is all quite a long time ago but you have that kind of feeling of knowing you're the one in the room with less experience and just sort of trying to overcome that by being as prepared as possible so Obviously, doing your research on the facts and figures and so on and, and what you're going to be discussing, but also drawing on experience of colleagues, perhaps people who've been in that kind of situation before and learning what you can from them. And also knowing, knowing what your boundaries are, particularly from the perspective of the business, what could be compromised, what couldn't be compromised, you know, and being comfortable in knowing, knowing what you can and can't do in a situation. And perhaps I'm using rose-tinted spectacles, but as I recall, I think it was actually a really positive experience and that opportunity to have a dialogue about some difficult decisions and get those thoughtful but challenging questions really help you iron out, well, what is good for the employees here? What's good for the union reps? What's good for the managers? What's good for the business? Reaching that compromise position. So that's one scenario, Obviously, not all scenarios, particularly as an HR person, are quite so positive, uh, particularly in in pay discussions. So, as another example, take a situation where I've done, um, say, an equal pay audit and I've identified an individual who's being paid over and above what other people doing a comparable role are being paid. And where there's no objective justification for that pay difference, the business has two options. You either raise the pay of everybody else or you negotiate with that person about their individual pay rates. And obviously, if you're taking that first decision to raise other people's pay, that's more positive and you can have some easier conversations. (laughs) The latter scenario where you're needing to negotiate with an individual to reduce their pay to all intents and purposes is obviously very challenging. And I feel a lot of pressure in that type of situation because I, I can see both sides to it. You can see the the bigger picture and the importance of doing what's fair for all the employees, but also you can see the perceptions of that individual and what feels fair to them. And there's a real tension there. And as an HR person, you're you're often the one in that role trying to negotiate that compromise between that sort of bigger business perspective and the individual employee experience and trying to trying to bring the two together when perhaps they don't align.
1: Interesting. Obviously Quite a lot of people listening to this are women, not not all. And quite a lot of people listening to this are people working part-time. And we know that sadly in the UK, but likely in other countries as well, part-time work is paid less per hour than full-time work, which is obviously rubbish. So it's part of my, you know, I'm really hoping that quite a few listeners are going to have the right conversations about increasing their pay, which in the current environment, let's face it, it's not easy. I think these conversations are still to be had because there is a level of inequality that we need to address. So just from you know your position of seeing stuff happening behind closed doors, what do most people not realise about how pay decisions are made? Is, this, is there a black spot that you can see time and time again employees not realising?
0: I think as a general answer, it's possibly the huge variety in how those decisions are made, both across organisations, across industries, and even within a single organisation. So, there's just a huge variety of ways that these decisions might be made. So, some organisations will have no structure at all, and there's no systematic process, and the decision will be very much in the hands of an individual person. So, that type of scenario is very different from, say, an organization where there's a really tight bond between, say, performance management and reward. So that really there's no difference between the systems. And if you get a pay rise, that's entirely determined by your performance rating. But then, of course, those performance systems vary hugely in how robust they are. So again, it can be anything from an individual manager making a decision up to, a really comprehensive set of targets and quantifiable metrics and everything in between. Then, of course, you've got your more public sector type organisations that have very defined pay structures. And those will somehow, one way or another, relate to the size of jobs. And there'll be rules about how you progress up those structures. Other organisations still have those automatic annual pay increases. They might be related to something like the retail price index, But there's a huge variety in the types of pay structures and the types of pay decisions that organisations make. And the governance behind those will be really different as well. So some industries, the pay rates are nationally negotiated. So the the individual employers have less flexibility. As I've already mentioned, sometimes it's a negotiation with trade unions. Some organisations have committees who make pay decisions and sometimes it's just individuals and all those different ways of doing things really impact on how you approach discussions about pay as an individual and even within your organisation you need to be aware of potential differences
1: so i quite often hear saying well actually in our organisation everything is fixed there's not really flexibility for example public sector or some charities but also some performance related organisations in your experience is that really true or Is it that some of those, in those fixed structures, there's still people who negotiate pay?
0: As you'll probably expect, my answer is going to be, it depends a bit. As you've mentioned, some organisations have very rigid pay structures, very rigid processes. My experience, though, is that however detailed your policy is, however detailed your processes are, it's never going to cover every scenario. So in practice, there's always a bit of wriggle room. And for individual discussions and individual negotiations. And of course, that statement they make about, well, this is what we pay for this role or so on, that might be true, but it might not be straightforwardly true. So, yes, that might perhaps be what they pay for that role, but that doesn't mean that's right and not open to challenge. So that decision could have been affected in the past by some kind of bias or they could have imported inequality from somewhere else when they hired someone or they've imported inequality in the market rate so even if an organization says no this is the structure and this is what we pay it doesn't necessarily mean they're right
1: (laughs) and do you have any tips for asking so when you get that answer saying oh no no you know this is the structure so no there's no pay rise do you have any tips or any examples where you've seen people negotiate well in those environments
0: so Often when you get those kinds of responses, drawing on my experience, it's often true that yes, there is a pay structure and there are rules and processes around how you progress up that structure. So in terms of base pay, there isn't always a lot you can do. But often in my experience, there are other types of pay. So maybe a retention type of payment or a payment that's related to attraction and getting people into the organisation. And these can often be add-ons to that base pay. And those tend to be the things where there's more flexibility and more opportunity to negotiate. So if you're going into an organisation as an employee, you can actually be in quite a strong position. It's probably the strongest position you'll ever be in in terms of negotiating your pay, because presumably the organisation really wants you at that point and really needs somebody to come in and start doing that role. So by doing as much research as you can and informing yourself about the expectations of pay for that type of role, you can actually go in very well informed and make a strong case for why you should be paid a certain rate. That can be tricky, of course, for those industries where it's not common practice to advertise the expected pay for a role. And that's a whole different issue and challenge that transparency. But there's a lot of information available now particularly on the internet, where you can do your own research and work out what a role should be paid. And of course, draw on your own networks as well. Get as much information as you can.
1: So you mentioned attraction payment, and I've heard about that in the context of graduate recruitment schemes who give, in quotation marks, a golden hello when someone joins. I've never heard of a retention payment. What's that?
0: It's something I've seen used in organisations where people are Perhaps not having an opportunity to be promoted and gain recognition via that route. So it can be a way of, if you've got somebody who has a real skill set or knowledge base that you really need to retain within the organisation, but right now don't have those career path opportunities available, that type of pay supplement can help retain that person and retain their knowledge and skills within the organisation. And actually can be a cheaper way for the organisation of keeping that role filled than going through a recruitment process to re- replace somebody.
1: And that's usually done, I imagine, for technical roles, engineering. Is, is that
0: right? or is it, it, is it- You do see it quite, I'd say, more commonly in those types of roles where there is high competition and not necessarily a lot of the skills you need available in the external market.
1: Great. Thank you for explaining that. And I'm interested in, about the timing when you should ask for a pay rise. Do you have any examples of when someone really asked at a good time that then swayed you and your colleagues to give them a pay rise?
0: I don't have any particularly good examples because it's so variable. Pay is a very personal topic and when's a good time is going to depend on quite a lot of factors. It's going to depend on your organisation who you have to ask for the pay rise. Obviously, some organisations like a university have very kind of rigorous annual pay review processes. And unless and something really exceptional is going on, you're best off just complying with those dates and the process. And that's going to be the best way um, of approaching those conversations. But even where there isn't a standard process like that, I would still say do your research. So, make use of your internal networks within your organization. What types of approaches have worked for other people? Are there trends about when in the business cycle you're most likely to get a positive answer? So, you know, what's your your financial year and are you more likely to get a a yes at the beginning of that year or at the end of that year? And just doing that, that bit of research about how things are done within your organization and getting a bit of an understanding about what might work for you and your scenario and also a little bit of reflective preparation i guess so perhaps you've recently done some really brilliant things but do the right people know about those so the people who are going to be making the pay decisions do they know how brilliant you are and if they don't perhaps do some of that groundwork first making sure that the value you create for the organization is known by the right people before you start those conversations about pay
1: yeah I so 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 uh, empathize I never forget at the very beginning of my career I was working for I think I can say this I was working for the charity teach first and I was really working super super hard on trying to get all our teachers placed before the training started and until then 10 years or so of the history they've never been placed on time and I absolutely worked my socks off to get them placed on time and I was just basically did everything that you know i'm telling you probably not to do at this part of my membership i just put my head down and did delivered exceptional results and then a few months later i bumped into the ceo brett victor who, who was talking about how the london team had achieved this amazing result but he had absolutely no clue that i was the person who achieved the result and i very rarely trumped my own horn but i definitely that that was me achieving that result for sure and that was such an interesting learning point and i think that's mm-hmm. part of why i'm so talking to the fellows all the time about making sure that people if you do deliver amazing results that make a really high impact and that did make a high impact it means meant that the teachers who joined us weren't so stressed they could because they were they knew which school they were going to they were able to run the training you know have their mind on training rather than worrying whether they would be ending up in glasgow or london Anyways, and obviously also at the time I didn't negotiate pay at all, which now is very different. But given the CEO didn't, you know, that it's really essential that they know is what I'm saying. Is there anything just in terms of top, you know, that the pay negotiations when you apply to a new job, is there anything that you would advise there that you've seen work really well to get? And especially I think we need to make sure that people don't get, you know, if they apply to a part-time job, I would recommend to absolutely everybody, like you have to negotiate because you can assume that part-time job is paid less per hour than a full-time job. Don't, you know, it's not because people are evil or so, it's just because of how things, you know, how the system works. So you have to negotiate. How do you negotiate though, Lisa? What works?
0: This is where it's slightly trickier when you're going into a new organisation because of course you don't know their culture, you don't have that insider information on what's going to work. But I still think there's a couple of things you can do. I'd say always negotiate, particularly part-time roles, particularly if you're a woman, always make a suggestion that you should be paid higher than what they're advertising. <laughs> Just to push that door and, and see, see what happens. As I said earlier, you know, when you're Coming into an organization, you're actually in probably the strongest position you'll ever be in with that organization to negotiate on your pay. So make the most of it. Do your research. So have a realistic expectation and informed expectation of pay range for that role. I personally always set myself at a minimum of like, well, that is my absolute bottom of what I would accept. If they can't meet that, unfortunately, going to have to walk away. It helps you to make those decisions first before you go into the conversation. So set your own boundaries around the conversation. It's difficult, as I said, not having that knowledge of what sort of approach is going to work. So it's not just going to be about having the data and the information and being able to say that, you know, this is how I know this is the correct pay rate. Because it's not the data itself that's going to do the sales for you. You need to tell that story and get the person invested in the conversation. I mean, Same as any sort of presentation and negotiation tips, I guess. But getting that rapport and doing that storytelling and buying the person into your, your argument. It's not just presenting some facts and hoping they make the right conclusion.
1: Interesting. So... I wonder when you apply for your next job, which mm-hmm. may be in five or ten years' time, what exactly are you going to say in terms of your story? You you can choose not to answer Anna, what <laughs> <is> that. <laughs> it's too personal, but I'm just interested. You know, telling that story. What what do you mean by that? And also, yeah. what phrasing would you use? Like yes. what phrasing do you use to say, "I would like this pay."
0: It's always difficult for me because I'm a very facts and figures and data-driven person. <laughs> so I, I'm not the best person to ask for tips on, on storytelling. I'll be the first to admit that isn't one of my strengths. But what I do, as I said, I will do that research. I will have the facts and figures to hand. I will spend a lot of time thinking about what their perspective might be, what kind of questions might they come up with, what kinds of challenges might they raise and think about how I could counter those and answer them so it's taking that step back and having a think about that bigger picture as I said earlier it's setting my own parameters before I enter that negotiation as well about what I'm prepared to compromise on what I'm not prepared to compromise on because it's not all just about pay It's about other things as well. You might be prepared to take less pay for more flexibility is a really common example. So it's thinking about that whole negotiation and not necessarily just the pay part and how you can relate those things together. I tend to focus on their perspective. So it's very much about what value I will create, what I am bringing to them, what they really need and want within the organisation and making that case for why you're the best person to deliver that and why there's a premium attached to having you rather than anybody else. It's quite difficult to talk about in generalities. So in, in my particular situation, Because I'm a lecturer in a business subject, a real selling point for me is that I've been a senior leader in business. Lots of people with a PhD will have just followed an academic track and won't actually have that practical experience of having been an academic. So that's something I really draw on in my negotiations because I can bring that theory to life and have the skills and knowledge to do that.
1: Yeah, and I think it's interesting that that's what matters to your employer. To you, you may or may not find that. Extremely valuable. It mm-hmm. may well, and it probably makes your lectures much more engaging. But it's about what the employer, in your case, the university, values.
0: Exactly, and often I find that I focus on on the wrong things. If that makes sense, so you might have that imposter syndrome. So I might think, ah oh, do I really know enough about this? You know, is this really my area of knowledge and experience?" And that isn't what your employer is going to be worried about as I said, trying to take that step back. And again, this is where your network's really important because you can have conversations with other people and sense check your approach and sense check, is this how you'd approach this? How would you approach this? And try and draw on other people's experience too. You don't have to do all this on your own. There's a support network out there. Mm
1: -hmm. Very, very interesting. And the other thing I've been thinking about the recently is that obviously a lot of people that I know and actually some fellows have gone from five days to four days and some of the fellows who for understandable reasons have to say this live they managed to negotiate to get the same pay keep the same pay but go down in hours. Is that something that you've ever seen done and if yes what, what tips do you have to negotiate it?
0: Yes and this is something that I've experienced myself, I've I've worked part-time quite a lot in my past. I'm currently full-time, which is weird. I haven't worked full-time for about 10 years, so that's a new experience. And yes, there's two ways of approaching that. So either negotiate that you're going to deliver the same, just in a different way. So you're either going to do it over four days, or perhaps you're going to have flexibility around working evenings and, and early mornings. There's all different ways of negotiating that type of flexibility about when you work, which is different from negotiating about how much you deliver, if that makes sense. And in those scenarios, of course, you should be keeping the same salary. You're still delivering what you were always going to deliver for the organisation. Um, Where it's different is if you're actually wanting to reduce your hours. And there you need to have some quite robust discussions about, well, this is what I currently do. What am I going to give up? Because you can't carry on doing everything you were doing in less hours. And often you find where people perhaps return from maternity leave and reduce their hours to four days or three days. They find that actually they're doing the same work, but being paid for less hours because they haven't had those really strong conversations about what the expectations are about what they're going to be doing when they return. I've had some of those discussions myself. I mean, I'm always super keen and want to take on loads of interesting stuff. So you actually have to be quite strict with yourself and be like, well, no, I don't have time to do all this. I'm going to do this. And here's my plan for how this can be delivered by your team or a colleague or whatever. Always have the answer or at least a suggestion of what the answer should be. Don't just go in and say, I can't do that. And yeah, that puts you in a good place for those types of negotiations, having that plan for the organisation of how they can deal with the situation you're, you're presenting them with. Um, I'm interested about
1: if there's any changes that you've made from your first pay negotiations to your pay negotiations now, or maybe for your next job, either within the university or, or outside. What's the biggest thing that you're doing differently now for your own pay negotiations compared to when you started?
0: Okay, so I've got a terrible example of how to do a terrible pay negotiation from (laughs) earlier in my career, where I just almost on a whim, but with no forethought and no planning, just decided to challenge my manager. I was in a position where, because I like doing interesting stuff, I'd take on a whole load of extra interesting work that actually somebody else should have been doing. And I hadn't really thought through exactly what I wanted from this conversation. I hadn't researched what the the proper process for having a pay discussion was in that organisation. I hadn't really thought about what information I needed to make my case. And most importantly, in this scenario, I hadn't actually put myself in the shoes of the employer and thought about, well, how would they resolve this situation? Because, of course, in this situation, and as turned out, as the matter of fact, that the sensible solution for the employer is actually to rebalance that work across the two people rather than raise your pay for the extra work you're doing, which is actually very obvious if you take that step back and think about it. So that's a a great example of how not to approach it. Do that research. I think that's my key thing. Get as much information as you can to have that at hand, in your mind, in notes somewhere and Do take that step back. Think about that bigger picture. Think about, particularly at the moment, what is going on in the external environment? How's that impacting on your organisation? How's that impacting on the person or people who are making the decision? And it might not be the right time right now, depending on how robust your organisation is and how well it's coping with the current environment. But on the other hand, those factors are just one among many, and they shouldn't put you off having those conversations now if it is the right time and it's an important conversation to be having. That's my advice now is I'm always much more prepared. Take the type. It takes longer than you think. You'll disappear, particularly if you're like me, you'll disappear down a Google wormhole about, oh, that's really interesting and go off on a tangent. And it's like this isn't actually what I'm trying to research right now. But <laughs> <Anything laughs>
1: there websites you would recommend or anything specific? So
0: as with all research, it's really about being Careful about the credibility of your sources. There's lots of data out there about average pay and pay rates of certain roles. Things like Glassdoor, I'd probably take with a bit of a pinch of salt because that's just a subsection of people self reporting what their pay was. You'll find lots of um, recruitment agencies and so on do annual surveys, which are quite often open access, which give you some information. Of course, there's national data, like the Office for National Statistics, although I'll you at that with the note of caution that because that always tends to be at least a year out of date for pay, at least the pay rates tend to be a bit lower than they should be. And again, make use of your networks, particularly if within your organisation you've got a friendly HR person, they'll probably have access to paid for surveys, actually have a bit more detail and perhaps more robust information in. And yeah, I mean, I know we're very British and don't like talking about pay, but ask people, you know, (laughs) what they get paid if you dare. Mm,
1: That's excellent advice. And very similar in Switzerland, where I'm from, they don't even advertise salaries at all. So you go in completely blind, which is fun. Yeah. So we're coming to the end of our conversation, and we always finish with three practical things someone can do this week. So can you condense what you said for someone who is listening and Says, well, yeah, I think it is the right time for me to ask for a pay rise now. And they want to ask for a pay rise internally. What are three small practical things they might be able to do this week to get the process started?
0: Number one, as you might expect from my my personal example, is yeah, do your research, get as much relevant information as you can to work out yeah what you think you should be being paid for your job. As we've just been talking about, there's lots of data online. Your organization itself might publish some information, particularly if it's a large organization. So find out what's going on within your organization and what's available. Use your networks, as we've discussed. That research, I think, is really important. So you can be well informed. It's likely, if you're part-time or a woman, statistically, that you're probably being paid less than you should be for no good or justifiable reason. But by doing that research, you can be sure that actually you're right. And gives you those checks and balance about, well, should I be asking for a pay rise? And that's the point of using a range of different sources. So use some data, talk to your network, sense check what information you're getting, rather than just finding those things that reaffirm what you want to hear. Do your research, number one. Number two, I would say, then take that step back view this from lots of different angles, lots of different perspectives, particularly from your organization's perspective, particularly from the perspective of the person or people who will be making the decision. Think about how they're likely to respond. And as I said earlier, do that sort of prep work. Do the right people know who you are and how brilliant you are. And if not, prepare some of that groundwork first and be very clear about what value you bring to the business and why why you're important and valuable and then third practicing that pitch what's your story yes you've got these facts and figures yes you've got this data but how are you going to convince that person that actually you're the person who should have the pay rise why are you so important do some of that broader research around you know how you do a good data-driven presentation how you drive a good you know data-driven case all those sorts of general hints and tips will be really useful for thinking about how to approach telling that story how to approach making your argument
1: thank you very much lisa and i'm sure lots of people will be interested in you following you your work and also the programs that you're running at exeter university where can they find out about it
0: so if you look me up On the University of Exeter website, Lisa Grover, you'll find my profile page and my email address. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. So Google me and you should find me. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, Frida, you you can have all the contact information to add and uh, share with anybody who would like it.
1: That's very kind. And do you want to say about where where to find your
0: course in case an HR professional is um, listening to this? So it's the Senior People Professional Apprenticeship Programme. And again, if you look for all the apprenticeships run by the University of Exeter, you will find that one. We run a whole variety of programmes, including the Senior Leader Apprenticeship, which I also teach on. And yet they're an absolutely brilliant way of developing yourself, developing your career and really bringing knowledge and skill and added value back to your organisation. It's a great way of being able to study whilst also working, which is, I think, a real advantage.
1: Amazing. Thank you so much, Lisa. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you might also like episode 65, where I talk to Claudia T. Miller, who is a pay rise negotiation coach, about what she advises to get a pay rise. And if this has been helpful to you in any way, and you'd like a practical community to support you, then consider joining the fellowship program on leadersplus.org.uk. You will get access to inspirational role models who have experience of bringing up kids thus progressing their careers. You'll get support with practical challenges, for example, workload, or saying no, developing v- your vision and making a plan for career and family life in small group sessions. You will access research on what causes career progression and how to implement this practically in the context of looking after young children. And if you have happen to have a partner, a life partner, um, there are also some sessions where she or he can join. The application deadline for our NHS specific cohort is 17th October 2022. You can find the details on our website and also arrange calls if you have questions. And you can apply also for our cross sector programme in early 2023 again. Money shouldn't be um, what holds you back. There are hardship fund spaces available for those in financially challenging circumstances. We haven't allocated those yet for the next cohort, so you can definitely consider applying for those. And if you have any questions about how to get funding from your employer or some of our part funded spaces, then just get in touch. We've got plenty of support available. And um, see you next week.